Hello, and welcome to the Red Bulletin Podcast, where you find me, your host, Andreas Georges, talking to you through your eardrums. This week, we've got a preview podcast. Usually, we've got a interview guest, but every other week, we do a preview podcast where we try and kind of provide a little bit of context about something that we're going to talk about uh, with the next week's guest. And as next week's guest is one of the uh, top uh, promoters in the electronic dance music scene, I wanted to set it in Los Angeles in the early 1990s because that's really where the electronic music scene gain steam and it was kind of a surprise that it did because LA in the early 90s was was a place that was quite far removed from from the ideal presented by Hollywood uh, racial violence was rocking the city during the Rodney King riots um, the gangster rap group NWA served as kind of like a street CNN providing the lyrical narrative to the exhausted African-American populations of the city, giving rise to gangster rap that would go on to define the city's musical contribution to the country. But L.A. was also the home to another, maybe less touted musical movement, rave culture and the electronic music that provided its drumbeat. It had been given up for dead with a drug problem that had spiraled out of control in the scene in the late 80s. But in the early 90s, a few passionate ravers began taking things into their own hands. They threw underground parties and empty warehouses and dangerous and random corners of the city and beyond. Hundreds and thousands flocked, drawn through word of mouth and posters and flyers handed out on street corners. In packed, fire code busting, violating spaces, they thronged around DJs who'd laid out their equipment on car tables or a piece of wood propped up on cinder blocks. They dressed colorfully in top hats and overalls, wigs and beads and fur and neon and went until dawn broke or the cops arrived. And this is the, the, the crucial part of this scene. Uniting them was a shared feeling of being the outsiders, the freaks, the outcasts. They were finding community to the sweat-soaked beats of DJs like Steve Kool-Aid. Uh, it was Kool-Aid by the way, real name Stephen Enos, who threw the first parties in the late 80s and early 90s using the name Electric Daisy Carnival, including a festival in 1991. In 1997, the Electric Daisy Carnival was revived by next week's guests who had founded a company called Insomniac, and it was held at the Shrine Expo Hall. There was one stage, there was a few thousand people decked out in Janko pants, uh, among them probably our engineer, first name James, who had a predilection for that style in the mid-90s. I don't know if he rocked any Looney Tunes t-shirts, but I wouldn't put it past him. And it had a projection screen behind the DJ booth, carrying the swirly, undulating imagery reminiscent of early screensavers. Its growth coincided, or led, actually, the growth of electronic dance music in the U.S., a genre that encompassed trance, techno, house, ambient, drum and bass, and a host of other smaller subgenres that were constantly splitting themselves in two and redefining themselves. Along the way, it left a trail of disputes with the municipalities in like San Bernardino and Long Beach and Barstow that, that first welcomed the Electric Daisy Carnival and Insomniac and then threw up their hands when things just got too big. Authorities in the rave scene clash constantly, owing to the undercurrents of illicit substance abuse in the scene and, and constant code violations. 
Before the age of 24-hour cable news, uh, local news reporters ran finger-wagging investigations, and I put that in air quotes, on ditch parties that took place during school hours. Um, And they're really funny. You can still find them online. They were uh, preceded by those, like, undercover banners, like, KCXS goes undercover, and they had the sound effects like, dun-dun-dun. In 2010, a stampede during the event at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum sent uh, 100 people to the hospital, and a teenager died from an overdose of MDMA. Insomniac moved the event to Las Vegas a year later, but the occasional negative press around the company didn't seem to have much effect on the popularity of the scene. The Electric Daisy Carnival kept welcoming more and more guests, or as they like to refer to their music fans, headliners. Uh, each year, the festival expanded to Puerto Rico, Brazil, the UK, Orlando, New York, in addition to a host of other cities. They held the 20th Electric Daisy Carnival last June, and 135,000 people attended the three-day event at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. The humble strobe lights and fog machines of early raves had been transformed into a mega entertainment event there are like 133 light towers there alone and eight stages uh and the main stage they spent an estimated three million dollars on it and it weighs something like 700 tons and can hold 70,000 people there were 18 carnival rides four ferris wheels and paid performers circulating throughout it's the kind of event that next week's guest, Pasquale Rotella, could only dream about wandering around Venice Beach as a kid, entranced by the freaks and weirdos that called the boardwalk home. As he built Insomniac and the Electric Daisy Carnival into the force it's become today, he relied on the belief that music could form a community that would grow and ultimately become profitable. And he's still obsessed with the details. This year, for example, EDC will feature a massive moving art car with a stage on it firing flamethrowers. He's a man who is passionate about both what electronic music can do for a person and what it can do when it's roped into a community. And throughout EDC's growth, like the biggest challenge for him has been maintaining those values of peace, love, unity, and respect throughout. It's a real interesting conversation with him about how to do that. Hope you tune in next week. See you later.